This podcast is for reference purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Hey, is this thing on? Welcome to Maddox on the Mic, a legal podcast presented by Maddox, an independent Australian law firm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Maddox on the Mic. Uh, my name is Chris Sharalambis, and I'm a senior associate here in the Employment, Safety and People team. Today on the Talking Workplaces podcast, joined by two presenters uh, in our team as well. I'm joined by Tamsin Webster, who is a senior associate in our team. Hello, Tamsin. Hi, Chris. And also joined by Catherine Dunlop, who is a partner in our Employment, Safety and People team. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Chris and Tam. Thank you both for joining us today. Um, I plan to do very little talking today and to throw it across to both of you who will talk about all things best practice in addressing sexual harassment. I'm sure there's quite a bit to talk about um, and it's a very interesting topic that I'm sure a lot of people will be very keen to hear about, particularly in this day and age. So over to Catherine and Tam. Excellent. Thanks, Chris. Um, this is a really interesting topic and it's been coming up a lot recently. Um, a number of our clients are asking us to revise their sexual harassment policies to reflect best practice. And we're also seeing a lot of employees coming forward with current and historic sexual harassment complaints. And based on the recent reports and research, we know that sexual harassment is a systemic problem that can impact all workplaces. So the 2018 National Survey by the Australian Human Rights Commission found that 85% of Australian women have been sexually harassed at work at some point in their lives. And what's more, the same survey found that only 17% of workers who experienced sexual harassment reported it. So Catherine, there have recently been a number of reports and guidelines about preventing and responding to sexual harassment in the workplace. Are you able to set out for our listeners what those reports are and the key changes they recommend to prevent and respond to sexual harassment? Certainly. Thanks, Tamsin. So uh, many of you will be familiar with the Respect at Work report, which was really a landmark report, um, which was produced to address a number of issues. I and mean, it was a national inquiry into sexual harassment, but it really is the most comprehensive document and a little bit depressing, really, in terms of the scope and the scale of sexual harassment. It's a very useful guide. There's also in Victoria been a report by the Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission, which is particularly useful. And we're going to talk about a little bit about today because it's got some very practical elements in it. We've also had reports from the Australian Institute of Company Directors, the Male Champions of Change, by Safe Work Australia, by Comcare and by uh, various other state and territory regulators. And whilst many of those contain a lot of detail, there are some common themes coming through them. The first is that sexual harassment is seen increasingly as a power issue, and we've had that recognised by a former Justice of the High Court coming out and discussing that. So it's very clearly understood through that lens. Also, I think there's long overdue recognition that sexual harassment is a workplace health and safety issue and it needs to be looked at through a safety lens, not simply through a complaint lens in the way that we've managed to deal with other psychosocial hazards like bullying and our thinking has evolved in that space. It's clear as well that employers uh, need to do more than just uh, have a policy and tell people that they can report. They actually need to have a plan to prevent sexual harassment. When it does occur, they need a victim-centred approach. Now, what does that mean? 
It means that you give um, a complainant some options, some information. You don't necessarily treat the lack of collaboration as a bar to dealing with a complaint and you try and minimise the options for the person to have to repeat it over and over and over again. Uh, and it also uh, requires employers to identify risk factors and address those. So really a, a risk assessment in the same way we do for other risks in the workplace. So on that point, Tamsin, do you want to talk about the drivers of sexual harassment? Yes, thanks, Catherine. So it's really important to understand the drivers in order to be able to address it. And what the recent research is telling us is that sexual harassment stems from power imbalances that exist in the workplace and in society. Sexual harassment is disproportionately experienced by women um, and, and certain groups in the community, such as um, young women, women with disabilities, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women, and also women from multicultural and, and multi-faith backgrounds. And one of those power imbalances is gender inequality, but that's not the only power imbalance. So there's this concept of intersectionality, which recognises that workplace inequality, it's often not just one factor such as gender, but it can be the result of intersecting power relations. So things like race and disability um, and sexual orientation. So this really requires employers to take a a different approach and um, to really look at their workplace in terms of, of power imbalances and, and gender inequality and, and take steps to address that in order to um, prevent sexual harassment. But as well as power imbalances, also workplace characteristics that can create opportunities for sexual harassment. So, you know, it's things like the workplace environment. Are there isolated work areas or um, workplace requirements. So is there a requirement to travel and stay overnight or an expectation to attend events where alcohol is served? Um, it's also about looking at the workplace composition. So do you have a male-dominated workforce or client base or a high proportion of workers who are casually employed or on sh short-term contracts? And so that um, Varioc guideline that you mentioned at the start, that has a great risk assessment tool within it. So it sets out all of the factors that, that could enable or drive sexual harassment um, and also create barriers for identifying and reporting sexual harassment. So I definitely encourage listeners to, to have a look at that because, yeah, it's a, it's a great guide. So, Catherine, what you know, we've spoken about the risk factors and, and a, a high level overview of, of some of the, the recent um, ideas. In terms of a sexual harassment policy, what do you think it should contain? Thanks. Well, there's been an enormous amount of guidance about this, and it's clear that having your sexual harassment policy in with your discrimination and bullying policy is no longer the way to go. You need a separate standalone sexual harassment policy, and I think it's the Male Champions of Change report that suggests it needs to be a document that can be read by a distressed reader. So if something's happened, I want to access this, and I want to find out what my options are. So I think we need to bear that in mind in drafting it but there's or updating your policies, but there's an enormous amount that the various guides recommend go in a sexual harassment policy. The first is that it must contain a clear statement that sexual harassment is unlawful, unacceptable, and will not be tolerated wherever and whenever it takes place. So not only 
in what we might have called the traditional workplace, although I'm not sure what that is in 2021 at the moment because it's all over the place, but also, you know, out-of-work conduct, some of those issues that have typically been a little bit grey, we can be firmer on and also making it clear that sexual harassment deals with things like clients and customers sexually harassing as well. The, the policy needs to include a statement that the employer has a legal obligation to eliminate sexual harassment and also victimisation. So victimisation, the notion that if I say something, either because I've been subject to sexual harassment or I'm a bystander and I comment, that there will be adverse treatment against me. Again, unlawful and gives rise to consequences under health and safety legislation, equal opportunity legislation, and um, clearly under the Fair Work Act. The policy needs to state the employer's commitment to providing workers with a safe working environment and the standards that are set. So it needs to set those workplace standards, which also means providing a very clear definition with examples of sexual harassment and of victimisation so that it's very clear when someone who is that distressed reader looks at it, they can work out whether what's happened to them falls within one or, or possibly both of those definitions. The victim-centred approach means we give the victim some control. Now, that doesn't mean a victim gets to say, well, I want these consequences, but it involves them in discussions about what's going to happen. Sometimes it won't be possible for, to suit all of their wants and needs um, or to, to provide them with what they require. And in some cases, it may not be able to be substantiated. So we need to bear that in mind. The policy needs to be drafted to, to give that focus. It needs to provide multiple options, so that may be informal options, and we see from the Respect at Work report that many people just want the behaviour to stop. They want a mechanism to be able to say, please don't do that anymore, um, and not to have to escalate it unless it continues. So we need that sort of informal process, we need options for facilitated conversations, and then the more formal process, uh, either if it's requested or if it's necessary for health and safety reasons. The policy also needs to recognise the importance of prevention and uh, recognising sexual harassment as a safety risk. The Variot guidelines talk about acknowledging that sexual harassment is driven by power imbalance and gender inequity. And lastly, I think the policies need to provide very clear expectations for all, which will include bystanders, because I think it's useful to remember that this document may well be looked at by a distressed bystander. Now, if that sounds like an awful lot to put in a policy, you're probably right. But these days, having a policy doesn't mean putting something in a paper form. We can hyperlink, we can do things, we can drill down into different levels of the document so that it does provide a really comprehensive guide if need be. But it also is something that's not overwhelming at first instance when someone wants to try and find information. Thanks, Catherine. That's, that's really helpful. And I guess, um, what do you think about anonymous reporting? So having um, the option to make an anonymous complaint in a policy, do you think that's a good idea? Yeah, I certainly do. And I think it's really important to understand that there may be good reasons for an anonymous complaint. It doesn't mean you can't investigate it. It might mean you have to go about it differently. But you could, for example, uh, even if you're not able to substantiate the particular claims, use it as a reason to check on the workplace culture, to look at departures in the team, to speak to people about any issues. Very similar to what we do when we do a health check more generally. And remembering that we're looking at this with a safety lens. So if someone is injured at work uh, or has a near miss at work and then says, well, it happened with this piece of equipment, but I don't want you to do anything about it. I'm not putting a complaint in we would still look at the piece of equipment and ascertain whether or not it's safe. So mm. it's a similar sort of scenario here. Um, and I think it's very important in your, in your policy that you give that option. And I also think the other thing that arises sometimes in this space is making sure that we don't 
overly stress, or frankly, I don't think there's any need to stress it at all, um, the notion that um, uh, vexatious or false complaints will be dealt with in a particular way. That's clearly part of an employee's responsibility and their obligation of truth and fidelity. We don't need to put it in a policy and potentially scare people off who are worried enough about the issues. Um, and mm. the, the evidence certainly doesn't suggest that we have a preponderance of people lying about sexual harassment. Uh, if, it, if, we, if you do have that, you can deal with it. But you really want your policy to be such that someone who's had something happen will trust that the organisation is going to take this seriously. And so that tone is very important. Yes, that's right. And I think, um, you know, going back to those statistics at the start that that I talked about with, you know, the survey finding that only 17% of workers who experienced sexual harassment reported it, you know, we really need to be thinking about why that's happening and whether, you know, measures like anonymous reporting can, can help or, you know, at least having that victim-centred approach set out in, in the policy. So it's, yeah, it's an, it's interesting to think about. And I guess what, what we've been doing as well is really making sure that employers understand that having a best practice sexual harassment policy is, is definitely a good starting point. But um, as we talked about at the start, it's it's not just about having that policy in place and responding to to complaints as they arise. The um the reports and the research are really showing that the conversation has shifted to one of of prevention and continuous improvement. Yeah, so it might be a good time to talk about the Variop guidelines. So that um is very helpful. It's it's obviously a Victorian guideline, but it's also it reflects a lot of the the national reports on on best practice. Um, so it's it's a good guide for for anybody um, and it sets out six minimum standards for preventing and responding to workplace sexual harassment. So the first one is knowledge, so really understanding obligations as an employer in this space and, and being up to date with recent reports about the drivers of sexual harassment, the impacts, etc. The second is having a prevention plan, as you mentioned at the start, Catherine, as well as having a policy. So With the prevention plan, it's about setting out how the organisation will minimise and monitor risk. And the third standard is about building organisational capacity. So, for example, ensuring that leaders model respectful behaviour. And there's really this culture of of respect um, and understanding so that hopefully workers will feel more comfortable coming forward and reporting it. And then the fourth standard is risk management. So really ensuring that risks um, are regularly identified and assessed and that workers understand and are encouraged to use systems in place to address risk. So those are the first four standards. Catherine, did you want to talk about the, the last two standards in that guideline? Certainly. And look, one uh, one makes sense and one I think might be a little more challenging for organisations who don't have these things in place. Standard five is reporting and response. So this is uh, ensuring that when uh, sexual harassment does occur, it's reported and encouraging that and also that it's then addressed consistently, um, confidential, confidentially as much as possible and in a fair way. So this is really about um, what your processes are for dealing with it. 
Standard six, I think, is the one that's really interesting, which is that your outcomes and strategies need to be regularly reviewed, evaluated and improved. So this, this really requires that you have a prevention plan and that you then report against it. So I think you think then about what your metrics are. Are you reporting on sexual harassment? If you've done your risk assessment, it should be in your organisational risk register and you should then have some mechanisms to report to your executive and your leadership teams about these issues. Now, those may not be quantitative entirely, um, and if they are quantitative, they might go up. So you might actually get more complaints when you start this process. But also, what are you doing in terms of consultation? Um, what are you doing in terms of training? What are you doing in terms of awareness? And how often do you need to review these things? And that's really key if we're looking at this as a safety risk. Uh, how do we measure what we're doing? And it's not simply enough to say, well, we've had no complaints, therefore it must be fine. Uh, it requires more than that. So uh, that's all we wanted to discuss today. It's a really evolving topic and there's a lot in this. Uh, I think, Tamsin, we'd both encourage people to have a look at this um, material and, and obviously if you've got any questions arising out of it, you can give us a call or send us an email or let us know because we've got um, you know, a lot of resources we can refer you to and we can help you with some of these difficult issues. But there's been an enormous amount of thought on this issue over the last 18 months to two years that has been reflected through these reports and uh, I think it'll be a really interesting time to see how they develop and, and whether the trend goes down, whether or not by implementing these measures we start to see an improvement in workplace behaviour and, um, and we find after a while that um, those numbers that you started at the start uh, hopefully will, will go down the next time there's a survey, um, a national survey by the Human Rights Commission. Yes, absolutely. And one last thing, the Respect at Work Bill recently passed both Houses of Parliament. This bill aims to protect and empower workers in relation to workplace sexual harassment. And we've actually just written an article about the bill and it's on our website. So I definitely encourage everyone to read it if you haven't already. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Catherine and, and Tamsin, I think that that's, uh, we might have to call it there. There's um, certainly a lot to talk about and uh, a lot of those points that you mentioned, I'm sure will we'll leave a lot for people to consider and um, hopefully get some advice on when, when things come up uh, in their own workplaces. So thank you to everyone for listening to this episode. We, we certainly hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out to Tamsin or Catherine or any other member of our team here. And of course, if you like this episode, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in to Maddox on the Mic. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to maddox.com.au forward slash podcast to subscribe. If you'd like more information on any of the topics discussed in today's episode, visit the Maddox website, maddox.com.au.